Have you ever, I know some of you have, but I'm going to ask it as an open-ended question. Have you ever had something happen in your life that was literally life-changing? And what I mean by that is, something happened and your life was never the same afterward. Again, I know some of you have had those experiences. If you've had children, you've definitely had those experiences. If you've been married, you've had those experiences. What I want to draw your attention to this morning as we get ready to embark on this study of Nehemiah 10, which I've had two weeks to prepare for, by the way, so just be ready. So, <clears throat> I would ask you if you've ever had an encounter with God, God's Word, that has been life-changing. And what I mean by that is, have you ever come across a word in Scripture, a passage of Scripture, a teaching from Scripture that affected you to the point that your life was never the same afterward? Because that's exactly what we're looking at this morning in Nehemiah 10. Let me paint a real quick backdrop for you of what's going on here. The story of Nehemiah, he had come from Persia to Jerusalem to help rebuild the walls. And we saw them get the walls built in 52 days, which was a miracle, uh, a work of providence in the people of God. And what we've seen since then is that they're trying to get life in Jerusalem back to normal. And at one point they had an assembly where everybody came to Jerusalem, to the city, and they had the Word of God read. For upwards of six hours one day, they just stood and had the Bible read. And people began to weep because they were convicted because the law of God was showing them where they had not been holy. They had not been doing right. But the, peop- but the priest said, don't whine, don't weep today. Today's a day of celebration, go rejoice. Well, then they came back day after day for more study, more reading. And finally the feast was over and then they wept in public because of their sins, because of what the Word of God had done in their lives to expose their sins. And where we find them today is at the end of chapter 9, we saw that they had written up a covenant in response to how they would live in light of what the Word of God had taught them and shown them. Today, in Nehemiah 10, we're going to see the contents of that covenant. And let me say up front, a covenant is a solemn, binding agreement. It's not a pinky promise. It's not a cross my heart and hope to die. It's saying there is blessings for obedience and there are curses for disobedience. If this covenant is not maintained, if we don't do what's written down here, let there be curses upon us. This is a big deal for the reformed nation of Israel as we come into Nehemiah 10. So what we'll do as we have that backdrop painted, we're going to read Nehemiah 10. So if you would please stand, and we stand because we reverence God and believe that these are His words, the very words of God. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, 
Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pashur, Amariah, Malchijah, Hattush, Shebaniah, Maluk, Haram, Miramoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Ginnathon, Baruch, Meshulam, Abijah, Mijamin, Maziah, Bilgai, Shemaiah. These are the priests. And the Levites, Jeshua, the son of Azaniah, Benui of the sons of Hinadad, Cadmiel, and their brothers, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Kelaita, Peliah, Hanan, Micah, Rahab, Hashabiah, Zakur, Sherebiah, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Bani, Beninu, the chiefs of the people, Perosh, Pehoth, Moab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Buni, Asgad, Bibai, Adonijah, Bigvi, Aden, Ader, Hezekiah, Azur, Hodiah, Hashem, Bezai, Heref, Anathoth, Nebai, Magpiosh, Meshulam, Hezer, Meshezebel, Zadok, Jadua, Pelatiah, Hanan, Aniah, Hoshea, Hananiah, Hashub, Halohesh, Pilha, Shobek, Rehum, Hashbanah, Messiah, Ahiah, Hanan, Anan, Malak, Haram, Baana. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our, our Lord and His rules and His statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burn offering, the Sabbath, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our fathers' houses at, appointed, at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also, to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks. And to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is written, the Levites who collect the tithes in all of our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Let me pray. Speak, O Lord. Not my words, but your words, God. Not my power, but your power. I have no power, but you have all power. So may you, will you, please, God, 
by the power of your Spirit. Draw us to yourself, either for the first time or for the thousandth time, as you speak your word. We ask you to have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. I will spare you reading those first 27 verses again. You're welcome. Something about Ezra and Nehemiah. They're about names, right? 27 verses of Hebaniah, Shabaniah, Hodiah, Zach. I mean, it's, 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 we don't get it. But what if your name was in that list? You'd like that list then, right? You'd be like, yeah, 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 Lucas and Amanda. Jason! Like, There's my name. So the first 27 verses is a list of names. Now these names are the names that were put on the seal of the covenant that we saw at the end of chapter 9 that they made, okay? And for something to be to have a seal on it and to have names on the seal meant it was an official document. This is a big deal. This is not a, a note that they scratched on a piece of paper and said, hey, everybody scratch your name on here. This was an official document with a seal. And that gave it validity. It gave it weight. Not like, like a paperweight, but like it gave it gravity is what I'm saying. And this covenant was the covenant that the people made in order to keep the law of God. So after these past few weeks of hearing the law read, studying the law, they kept the festival, remember that? They mourned over their disobedience. Now, as it always should be, the people are moved to action. Their repentance wasn't just an internal feeling or even an external show. Their repentance was evidenced by life change. Different actions with a definite plan and purpose to do things they hadn't done before and to stop doing things they were doing before. And so they make an official document with an official seal. And the seal has the names of the governor, which was Nehemiah has the names of the priests, the Levites, and the chiefs of the people. So these are the leaders and the representatives of all the people. So these names represent everybody. And it's the impotent people. It's the people that that rule and lead and are heads of fathers' households. The official seal has the religious and political leaders who are responsible for the everyday life activities of the whole people of Israel. Now let me read that again. You need to hear that. The official seal has the religious and political leaders' names on it, and these people are responsible for the everyday life activities of the whole people of Israel. Now, is that pretty far-reaching? What you do every day in your life, everybody. That's what this covenant is setting up. That's what this covenant is about. So this isn't just, hey, when we get together on Sunday, this is about what we do in our living rooms, in our bedrooms, at our workplaces, around the table. Every day, all day, everybody. Now, what does it contain? Verses 28 and 29. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, 
and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and His rules and statutes. So the first thing we see here in verses 28 and 29 is that this covenant includes everybody. We saw the political and religious leaders specifically in the list of names, but now we see that it has to do with the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God. Their wives, their sons, their daughters, and all who have knowledge and understanding. And that pretty much covers it, right? Notice that this covenant is about separation from the people of the lands. Peoples of the lands. It's about the Jews being separate and distinct in their day-to-day lives from all the pagan and non-Jewish people groups they were in the midst of. This is about separating by living differently. Again, all the time. In everything. In this covenant, this document, will spell out what that entails and shows that all Jews are responsible to it. It covers men, women, children, singles, and families. All who have understanding. If you can understand what this covenant is talking about, you were responsible to keep it. And if you couldn't, you were connected to someone who could understand, and they would be responsible for you growing to know and understand it. And what are you going to understand and keep? An oath to keep the law of God and a curse if you didn't. Now this harkens back to the period of the Jews preparing to move into the promised land when they left Egypt and they would wandered in the desert for 40 years when Joshua was getting ready to take them into the promised land. Moses had made provision in Deuteronomy 27 and 28 for blessings and curses to be pronounced. Blessings if you keep the law, curses if you don't. And he said, set it up on two mountains. One mountain over here is the curses, one mountain over here is the blessings, and the people who are on this mountain pronounce the curses, the people on this mountain pronounce the blessings. And this is reminiscent of that. Here in Nehemiah 10, the Israelites are again calling for blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. This covenant is an oath for the people of God to walk according to the law of God. Look at verse 29 there again. Join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and His rules and His statutes. Observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and His rules and His statutes. Now listen, this is dramatic. This is sweeping. This is life-changing. It's extreme. It's specific and it is harsh. There's no compromise here. Only blessings for specific obedience and curses for all disobedience. Now this is hardcore. We soft-pedal obedience in our culture today. And that's not what's going on here. You ready to see what it says? You're like, we've already seen it, right? We have, but we're going to see it again. Verse 30, We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Okay. Now we've already seen that the Jews have taken steps to separate themselves from the foreign wives they had both in Ezra and Nehemiah. 
Okay, both books detailed that happening at different times. Now, the first tenet of the covenant that these folks are making to keep God's law involves not intermarrying with non-Jews. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. There will be no intermarrying. Now that may not sound like much to us, but what if we translate it into today for us? What's, it, what's this look like for us? So leaders of the nation and leaders of families are saying, which translates into us saying, our kids will not marry anyone who's not a believer. But dad, he's a good guy. He's real nice. I love him. Mom, she's a nice girl. You'd really like her if you met her. And the answer is no. Now let me ask you something. I asked this a few weeks ago again. Is it possible, is it right, for God to tell us how to feel? The answer is yes. Remember they were weeping and the priest said, Don't weep, today's the day of celebration. So stop crying, go celebrate. Now bring that into this. But I love him. No. Stop loving him. Stop loving her because she's not a believer. Well, she's real nice. No. Is that right? Well, you can't help who you fall in love with. Baloney. All those books you've read and all those movies you've seen where people just fall haplessly, Romeo and Julietish in love. Baloney. Listen to me, young people. We'll get to it later. Don't set your affections on a non-believer. Don't do it. Write it down in your notes today that you're not going to do it. And when you're tempted, you can look back and say, nope. Because that's exactly what they're saying here. You will not marry a non-Jew. You will not marry somebody who does not worship our God. You are not to love and or invest your emotions into those who are not followers of Jesus. You say, well, that's not fair, and you're wrong. That's God's love keeping you from heartache. You cannot, cannot, cannot share a life with someone who doesn't love Jesus and not be hindered by their worldview. You can be saved and marry an unbeliever. You can. But you are asking for trouble. Alistair Begg said, There is nothing more incongruous than heaven and hell sleeping in the same bed. And again, you may say that's not fair, but this is not about fair. This is about God's commandments. This is about life change. This is about right and wrong. So here the Israelites are saying we will not intermarry, we will not mix and match our lives with people who don't follow our God's laws. We will not violate God's law that says we are not to intermarry with those who are not His people. We will not. And we covenant to make it so, to remind ourselves that that we said we would not. 
Now what else does the covenant say? Verse 31. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops on the seventh year of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Now this is pregnant with implications. There's a lot here. That's one verse, but it's got a lot in it. Now to see in its most basic form, what they're saying is they won't buy anything from anyone if they come to sell it on a Sabbath or a holy day slash holiday and that every seventh year they won't grow any crops at all and that all debts will be forgiven, as the law says, every 50th year. Let me give you some background. Let me unpack that a little bit so you get a little better understanding there. God had given specific instructions and laws concerning the Sabbath and keeping it holy in His law that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. The main thrust is that the Sabbath day, which for the Jews was from sundown on Friday until sundown on Saturday was to be a time of rest and worship. When you think Sabbath, think rest and worship. Anybody ever seen the film adaptation of Fiddler on the Roof? You see that in that movie. They're Russian Jews. They're, they're, they're not in a hurry. They live in Russia and they're Jews. And it shows them having their, you know, they're, they're trying to get back home and get everything shut down before the Sabbath starts. And then they have this musical piece where the Sabbath starts. and they, It's really beautiful. If you haven't seen Fiddler on the Roof, you need to watch it. A lot of bad theology in it, but a lot of good stuff too. It's really good. So for the Jews, sundown on Friday till sundown on Saturday was a time of rest and worship. This was in line with God resting on the seventh day of creation. So we turn to the book of Genesis. Listen to me. If you want to know what God wants, go back to Genesis. That's where God sets the precedent for everything else that will follow. So, in Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. So in the book of beginnings, in the book of precedence, God shows us how He designed things. And God designed the earth and the man and the woman that He he created on it to rest on the seventh day of the week. Now think about that. Adam and Eve were created on the sixth day. Their first full day of life was a day of rest. A lot of implications there we don't have time for. And then when he was giving the laws that would dictate Israel's life and conduct all those years later during the Exodus, God said plainly that the Sabbath was to be remembered and kept holy. Exodus 20, we'll read it this morning. Verses 8 and 11 say this, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. God says no work for anyone in the congregation of Israel on the Sabbath, which was the seventh day. 
It was a day set aside, like I said before, for rest and worship. And there actually aren't a lot of specific directions given as to what can be done, what can't be done. There are a few mentions. And the only thing it says is, in the law, there's not to be a kindling of a fire, you're not to gather wood, and you're not to plow. That's all the specifics that are given in the law. But the point was to set apart a day where you, your family, your animals, and everybody around you would have a day of rest. And it was a day to focus on God and to worship Him. Now here in Nehemiah, the people are re-upping their commitment to keeping and observing the Sabbath day by saying they won't buy goods from foreigners selling on the Sabbath and on any holy day, which are also called Sabbaths. Holidays, holy days were called Sabbaths. Now listen, these people had come back from Persia, they were in Jerusalem, and they were surrounded by people who weren't Jewish, who didn't worship like they worshipped whose day-to-day lives were different than theirs. Sound familiar? That's us. So these people didn't celebrate the Sabbath that they were living around. Life went on. Compestre was open. Okay? Praise God. But they're saying, we're going to be different. We're going to change our lives and be different from the people around us. Well, the people around them didn't say, oh, okay, we won't come. The people around them were like, hey, churros. We've got churros. Who wants churros? Not on Sunday, brother. I don't know why churros came out there. but The point is they would come peddling their stuff. And the Jews were saying, we're not going to buy it on Sunday. Or, sorry, our Sunday. We'll get to that in a second. On our Sabbath. From sundown Friday till sundown Saturday, we're not going to buy anybody's stuff. Remember it said there that even the foreigner and sojourner were to take the day as a day of rest. So to buy what they were selling would, would to be have them working. So that's pretty straightforward. But they also mentioned the foregoing of crops in the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Let me explain real quickly. Now this is a study in and of itself, but we've got to get through it so you understand what's going on. The first mention of foregoing the crops of the seventh year was a special provision in the law that God had made to give the land a rest every seventh year. So he told the Israelites when they came in, Leviticus 25, The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruit. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, For yourself and for your male and female slaves and for your hired worker and the sojourner who lives with you and for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land, all its yield shall be for food. Now, that's a lot, okay? Let me try to explain that as best I can. Basically, they were to sow their fields for six years and not sow every seventh year. Not just one time, not just the seventh year, but every seventh year. Now you think, okay, well, they get a vacation. But listen, this is how they lived. They were an agrarian society and a subsistence society that lived day to day by what they could raise with their own hands. 
And God says in the seventh year, don't grow anything. Well, what's that saying? Well, how are we going to eat? What are we going to eat if we can't sow in the seventh year? Huh. God commanded it, and God said He would provide in the midst of it. Now, that's pretty wild, but it gets even nuttier. Okay? The exaction of every debt, Leviticus 25, 8-17. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you forty-nine years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines. For it is a jubilee, it shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. In this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. And if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the jubilee, and he shall sell to you according to the number of years of crops. If the years are many, you shall increase the price. And if the years are few, you shall reduce the price, for it is the number of the crops that he is selling you. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. So... Again, brief overview of that. So every seventh year you don't grow, you don't sow. On the fiftieth year, all land that had been sold goes back to its original family of owners. And you don't sow that year either. The exaction of every debt. Every debt was to be calculated by the number of years leading up to Jubilee. So if it was year one, you paid for 49 years of crops on that field. If it was three years until Jubilee, you paid for three years of crops in that land. But on the 50th year, everything reset. Land went back to its original clans and families. Debts were canceled. Everybody was free. Now we talk about socialism and the problems it may produce. What about this? Every 50th year, everything resets. That's pretty crazy, y'all. They reset their whole economy. Returning land to its original owners, forgiving all debts, and balancing the books to zero. And not sow your land in that year either. So every seven years don't sow, which would mean the 49th and the 50th year don't sow. Now this is extreme equality. And God is mandating it for His people. And here in Nehemiah, they are writing it down in a covenant because they heard it read in the law and they were convicted because they hadn't been doing it. Matter of fact, that's part of what got them sent into exile originally. They hadn't let the land keep its Sabbath. So God said, for as long as you didn't let the land keep its Sabbath, I'm going to send you away. So they were in exile for 70 years because they missed 70 years of giving the land its rest. So here in Nehemiah, they're writing it down in a covenant to reintroduce these practices into their lives. This is a call for drastic, radical obedience. And they're doing it. And that's not all. Verses 32 to 39, we'll be done. Right. i got a lot to say. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. 
for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbath, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our Father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle as it is written in the law and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks. And to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests to the chamber of the house of our God and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all of our towns where we labor." And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Now let me just boil this down to as easy a form as I can make it. These were steps that were being taken in order to make sure the temple and those involved in its work were provided for. They agreed to pay a yearly offering of a third of a shekel. Now back in the Old Testament law, back in the Mosaic law, it was half a shekel. But remember, these folks were in bad way. They were in the midst of hardship, famine. They were selling their kids to pay their taxes, remember? So they backed off to a third of a shekel. Once a year, everybody paid a third of a shekel to help provide money to buy bread, grain, animals, offerings, and all the stuff needed in the temple for it to run day by day. And then in verse 34, they agreed to split up the responsibility between everybody to provide wood for the fire that was to be kept continually burning on the altar. If you're going to have a fire that burns all the time, you've got to have wood. Have you seen the land of Israel? Is it a very woody land? No. So they had to find wood. They had to cut wood. They had to bring wood. And it had to be there all the time. So they divided that responsibility up between everybody. Everybody had a part to play and they cast lots to determine who brought wood when. If the lot fell for the 3rd of December or the 6th week of the year, then your family was to provide wood in that time so the fire could burn. Every family had a part to play here. And then finally, starting in verse 35, provisions are made to ensure the first fruits, which is the first part of every plant, tree, animal, sun, herd, or flock, were to be offered as a gift to the Levites for their sustenance. And this is the principle of tithing. The first part of everything was given to the Levites. Now, firstborn children were redeemed by payment, by the way. They didn't take their kids and offer them. They gave them money in exchange for leaving their kids with the Levites. So don't freak out there. Even work animals that they needed, they could redeem them with payment so that they could keep them and work them. There were provisions made there. And then the Levites were to take the first part of what they received, the tithe of the tithe, and they were to provide for the priests with the tithe of the tithe. The Levites were to take the tithe of the tithe to the house of God and store them there so the priests and the singers would have what they needed. So the Levites got the tithe from the people and then the Levites paid a tithe from their tithe so that the priests and the singers could have what they needed. 
Again, it's easy to see why Ezra went back for more Levites. Remember that? When Ezra was getting ready to leave, there wasn't enough Levites. He knew they were going to need a bunch of Levites. So it's easy to see why he made his trip back into town to get some more Levites before he went back to Jerusalem. And then this last statement, we will not neglect the house of our God. We will not neglect the house of our God. Wow. In the midst of all these provisions and requirements, they were making it clear that they would make the operation and maintaining of what was needed for corporate worship a priority in their individual and community lives. The temple, those working there and what happened there would be of first importance and priority to them. And this again puts Ezra 1 through 6 in a better context because they had to get that temple built because the temple was going to be the center of everything that happened in their life. There were no people of Israel apart from the temple of God in their midst. Temple worship was one of, if not the defining characteristic of what, of what it meant to be a Jew. God's people were to worship God in the way that God prescribed and in the place that He prescribed or, or they were not functioning as God would have them to. And here at the conclusion of Nehemiah 10, the Israelites, freshly convicted by God's Word, recommit via covenant to make corporate temple worship a priority at the pain of curses for disobedience. Now that's a lot of information. What do we do with it? I see a lot. Okay. We have to realize that what ancient Israel went through was written down in order to show who God is. And it was also written down for our instruction. Romans 15, 4 says this, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. This was written down for your encouragement. This was written down for your instruction. Mine too. So what does this mean for the people of God today? Is it time to make a solemn oath of obedience? Now you may be thinking that we shouldn't make oaths since we're in the New Testament, right? Matthew 5, 33-37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, Jesus says, God in the flesh, Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is His footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So, let me ask you a question. Should we make a solemn oath to be obedient to God? No. We should not. Stay with me though. But we are called to obey. The front end of this covenant is based on a gift of God giving us holiness so that we might walk in it. Ephesians 2, You were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. So we're called to obey. 
And listen, when Jesus called you into new life, He called you into just that, a new life. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, Jesus says that those who hear His commandments and do them are like a wise builder who built their house on the rock, but those who hear and don't do are like foolish builders who built their house on the sand. We are called to do what the Bible commands. And we do it out of faith in God and His promises. And we let our yes be yes and our no be no. We don't stand here today and scribble on a document and say, everybody sign this. We've got to make an oath. We remind ourselves every week of what we're called to. Warren Wiersbe says this, We don't succeed as Christians because we make promises to God, but because we believe the promises of God and act upon them. We don't make promises. God has made promises. And we let that change our lives. Now with that in mind, I think it's obvious what this text calls us to. Four S's. Separation, Sabbath, spending, and scope. Separation, Sabbath, spending, and scope. Separation. In the context of our passage today, the separation we're talking about specifically has to do with what? What was the first provision of the covenant? Marriage. The Jews covenanted to not intermarry with non-Jews as was directed in God's law. So what does that mean for us? Does that mean we're not supposed to marry people unless they're Jewish? Listen to me. The institution, the God-ordained institution of marriage has never in the history of the world been under such direct defamation as it is in our day. Whether it's the hookup culture, and we talked about a couple of Wednesdays ago, whether it's cohabitating, whether it's homosexual seeking to have same-sex marriages viewed as normal, the prevalence of no-fault divorce, or just a disregard for marriage in general where people say they don't need to get married to have a valid lifelong commitment. We are Christians. And we believe that God has ordained marriage from the beginning when He created a man and a woman and put them together and said they were one flesh. Jesus would say in Matthew 19.6, So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together... Let not man separate. Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. We as Christians must exemplify what God designed marriage to be. We must separate ourselves from the casual, haphazard, God-dishonoring practices of the world when it comes to marriage. And the fact that this even needs to be said at all tells us how far down this broken path we've come as a culture. And we should make sure our children know this and avoid the pitfall of pursuing any kind of romantic or physical or emotional relationship with those who are not clearly fruit-bearing followers of Jesus. That doesn't mean you can't be friends with them. That doesn't mean you can't love them as a friend. But don't go out with them. 
Don't date them. Don't kiss them. Don't hold their hands. Just don't even begin that process. Why? Because God says not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Remember the Alistair Begg quote? Nothing more incongruous than heaven and hell sleeping in the same bed. It's true. And you may be sitting there saying, Calm down, Jason. Don't make such a fuss. But what I want to say is we have to make a fuss. We have to be clear and passionate about this like the Jews in Nehemiah's time were. Why? Because this is about the glory of God. Ephesians 5, 31-33 Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. God wanted to show the world what the relationship of Christ and the church looks like, so He created marriage. God-ordained marriage is a visible picture to the world of how Jesus relates to His church. And that is a big deal. So, we as Christians are to be separate. We are to be clear and we are to be passionate about this issue. Not annoyingly passionate, but passionate. And we show our passion by doing marriage well as Christians who are married to Christians. And we show our passion by speaking the biblical truth in love when addressing the issue with our words. And be careful. Don't be annoying about this. Be clear, be passionate, and be loving with what you say. Love people who don't agree with you. Love people... Love the, love the people of the world when they're caught in the system of the world. But do not compromise, especially in the realm of marriage. And if you are going to be a Christian in today's culture, you are going to have to be clear about what you believe about marriage. You say, well, I'm never going to get married. So be it. That's fine. Scripture is clear that there is a gift of singleness. But when you are asked what you believe about marriage, be biblical in what you say. And don't beat people with a Bible and try to bludgeon them into obedience. That's not what this is about. We all struggle with different sins. Love people. Speak the truth to them in love. And be clear, especially when it comes to marriage. Ten years ago, I don't know that this would have even been an application point. But it sure is today. Christians, be biblical in your view and in your discussion of marriage. So separation, that was point one. Point two, Sabbath. Yikes. Do I even go here? I feel like in view of what we saw today, we have to. And I know what some of you are thinking. And you're right. We are not bound by the law to keep the Sabbath. You're right. Absolutely right. Paul would go as far as to say in Colossians 2, 16-17, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. 
These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So we are not to keep the Sabbath looking to earn God's favor or making sure we're saved by checking that box off. I'm a good God-honoring person because I don't work on Sunday. But let me ask you something, okay? Let me just throw this out there. If God, from the very beginning of creation, set a precedent with rest on the seventh day being important, don't you think it might be smart of us to give that a try? To have one day a week where you purposefully rest and worship. To turn your attention from the world and work and busyness and the hustle and bustle and switch off and gaze heavenward lovingly and pointedly. The Sabbath laws given to the Israelites do not apply to us. We are not the nation of Israel. But the Sabbath principle is surely applicable. Now I cannot and I will not try to give you specifics of what that should look like because God doesn't give us specifics. He didn't really give the Jews that many specifics. But let me teach you a magic word that might help you establish good Sabbath habits. Are you ready? It's a magic word. You ready? It's... No. Say it with me. No. That's right. Say it long. No. Hey, can we go such and such a place Sunday? No. Hey, can you help me come over and build my porch Sunday? No. Hey, you want to go out and do something? No. Does that sound mean? I think think we've made it mean. No. You can't do everything all the time. So you've got to say no to some things sometimes. And what if you had a bricked off part of your week where you said no? Today I rest, today I worship. On purpose. I'm very convicted about this. I'm too busy. And if I don't build this rest into my life, I'm not going to get it. And it's not a revolving door of, well, maybe I'll rest on Tuesday this week and maybe I'll rest on Saturday next week. I believe, I believe it is right. I believe it is God-honoring. It's not going to save you. It's not going to get you excommunicated. But I think it's right to say, no, this is the time period. That Friday from sundown till Saturday on sundown, we're going to rest as a family and we're going to worship together. I believe it's good. Well, you don't know. I've got too much to do. That's the problem. We've got too much to do. So you've got to learn the word, no. What if you made it a priority to rest and worship once a week and said no to all the other good or better things so that you can have the best thing? Mary and Martha, right? Make her get up and help me. No. She's chosen the better part that can't be taken from her. Again, this is not rule-making or rule-keeping, but a genuine desire to focus on God and rest in Him one purposeful time a week. This would make corporate worship a priority for sure, right? You say, well, we work more here than we do at home. Maybe. Maybe not. Listen, if you have to answer the question of, are we going to church this week... You've lost already. 
That needs to be settled. Sundays are marked out for corporate worship as prescribed by the practice of the early church who, in honor of the rising of Jesus on the first day of the week, met on the first day of the week to worship. The Sabbath principle here is that Sunday is the day marked out for us to worship together. And if we don't protect this and make it a priority, there are scads of things that will try to deter you from it. Youth sports has invaded Sundays in our day like never before. Restaurants have started pushing Sunday brunch as times for special items and prices. But we are Christians. We meet together and worship Jesus on Sunday. Does it have to be Sunday? No, but it is for us. We meet for our main worship gathering on Sunday morning from 10 to noon and we choose to eat lunch together after that. That's how Providence Bible Church chooses to honor the Sabbath day for the corporate worship of God. And what about rest? I adjure you to purposefully pursue rest as part of this Sabbath observance. Go home and take a nap. Be at home with your family. Gather around the Bible together on Sunday. Rest and worship. Why? Because it's God honoring and it's good. Isaiah 58, 13-14, God says this, If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, wow, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now note from that that this is about calling the Sabbath a delight, not drudgery. It's about delighting in the Lord, not dreading a day where you can't do stuff. And that is about giving glory to and glorying in God and His design. He designed it that way. We would do well to be about that kind of business on purpose. The Jews did it in Nehemiah's time. I think it's pretty smart for us to do it. Separation, Sabbath, third, spending. The Bible is replete with references to money and wealth and greed and charity and so many things related to our finances. Let me ask you plainly, straightly, directly, has the Word of God changed the way you spend your money? If it hasn't, it should You've probably heard that Jesus talked about money more than He did heaven and hell combined. This issue is so very important in our lives because it's so pervasive. It affects all parts of our lives down to the very heart level for sure. In Nehemiah 10, they provided in the covenant they were making for financial provision for the temple worship. So this was primarily about their tithing. They were to give the yearly temple offering of one-third of a shekel. They were to give first fruits from everything, including redeeming their firstborn children. And they were making sure all of this got gathered into the storehouses for the priests and the Levites to live on. And they were not to sow their fields every seventh and fiftieth year, trusting that God would provide for their needs in those processes too. They had specific directions as to what and when they would give their tithes and their temple provision. Now we don't. We don't have a specific number. We don't have a specific process. 
that the New Testament says, give this way. But I'm going to ask you again, how are you doing with your money? Are you honoring God with His money? That's a better question. Because it is all His. If you are a servant of God, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, He owns everything. It's all His money. Are you honoring God with His money? Does your credit card statement honor God? Can you put it in your Bible? (laughs) Are you giving faithfully to help sustain the work of the church? Do you truly know that God owns it all and is Lord of your wallet? The Jews in Nehemiah's time made a written covenant saying they would constantly and consistently give sacrificially, specifically to make sure their corporate worship was funded and functional. We would be wise to stop our day-to-day life for a bit and evaluate how we are doing with money, primarily as it pertains to the church. And if mentioning it annoys you, like we shouldn't talk about money in church, you really need to look at your heart and see if money has taken a seat on the throne there. I don't go to church because all they ever talk about is money. You're losing the battle, if that's what you're saying. So how should we give? Quite simply, 2 Corinthians 9, 6-11, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly, financially, will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful, which means hilarious, giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Give with joy and as you have decided in your heart. Not because Jason mentioned money this week. Well, I better give something because he mentioned money. No, no, no. Give because you love to give. And in giving, you trust God to provide and bless you. Just like the Israelites who said every seventh year, we're not going to sow. We're going to trust God to provide for us for a whole year. And in the 49th and 50th year, two whole years. Really three whole years because they didn't have a harvest until the following year. So imagine that. The 51st year, so they, they harvest after year 48. They don't sow 49th year. They don't sow 50th year. They sow 51st year and they don't reap till the end of the 51st year. So from the end of the 48th year to the beginning of the 51st year, they haven't sown a thing. And they're trusting God to provide for them. Do you? you trust God to provide for you financially? I think we trust God in a lot of places, but maybe not in our finances so much. Give because you love to give. And in giving, you trust God to provide and bless you. Separation, Sabbath, spending, number four, last point, scope. This is just a simple point 
that all of this covenant was made in Nehemiah 10 to be centered around corporate life. The emphasis is on what we will do, not on what I will do. All that they do and covenant around is about their collective lives, their marriages, their Sabbath observances, their money. All of these were to be governed and observed in the context of how the whole community conducted themselves for the sake of the community and the glory of God. They were saying, as God had prescribed them to in the law, that we will do what we do so that we can worship God as He has prescribed as a corporate body. We will not neglect the house of our God. They were saying, in essence, their very lives, their marriages, their rest, their money, centered around corporate worship. Everything centered around corporate worship. Their lives were about worship. And so then should ours be. We will not neglect the house of our God. We will come into contact with the Word of God and let it change our lives, direct our lives, so that everything we do, every one of us, all the time, is centered around glorifying God as a corporate body. It's one thing to inconvenience yourself and observe a feast for a week like they did with the Feast of Booths. It's a whole other thing to change the course of your life with an oath to do what should be done. And that's exactly what they did here. Jesus calls His people to be obedient doers of His Word. Will you let your life be changed so that you can be an obedient doer of the Word of God? That's the final question I have for you today. Let me pray. God, your Word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing down to bone and marrow, soul and spirit, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. God, may we not be doers so that we can check off boxes and try to earn your favor. May we be doers knowing that we have been given your favor through the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And that that is a gift that is packaged with promise after promise after promise after promise for provision and blessing. So we live in response to that. Not trying to earn your favor but knowing we have your favor through Jesus and responding to that with love. In our marriages, in our view of marriage, in our Sabbath rest, in our spending, and in the whole scope of our entire lives, God. Help us to be obedient doers for your glory. We need your help. We need your Holy Spirit to empower us to do this. So we trust that you will do just that, God. Help us to be your people. And if there are those here who do not know you, Holy Spirit, would you, in your power, draw them, convict them of their sins, and show them that forgiveness comes through the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And may they run to him for the forgiveness of sins that they need to avoid the wrath of God that is coming upon the sons of disobedience. 
Give them grace. And may they worship you in spirit and truth for the rest of their lives. We trust you, God. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll just stand for the benediction. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Stay neat with us if you can.